This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Yusum. Today, we'll be speaking with Wanda Korn about her book, Georgia O'Keeffe, Living Modern. Wanda Korn is Robert and Ruth Halpern Professor Emerita in Art History at Stanford University. Her publications include Grant Wood, The Regionalist Vision, The Great American Thing, Modern Art and National Identity, 1915 to 1935, and Seeing Gertrude Stein, Five Stories. Welcome to New Books Network, Wanda. Thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for this book. It is so fascinating and so beautiful. The photography and all of the pieces that are featured in the book, it's amazing design and production. And um, tell us about it. And also, I should mention it was a companion with had a major traveling exhibition that was associated with it. So how I mean, how long did it take to, to research this book? I mean, it's incredibly rich. Well, it's a book that um, probably was researched in two parts. One is that I had for 20 years been doing work on George O'Keeffe's paintings. Um, and and that uh, was work in preparation for a chapter that I wrote about her in a book I called The Great American Thing, a quotation from her, by the way, The Great American Thing. And then um, out of The Great American Thing, which is a sort of straight art history book, I began to um, muse about some of the things I had learned about her, but also a couple of the other artists in that book, uh, all of whom were from the early 20th century American avant-garde field. Uh, I began to think about the fact that so many of them had interesting houses and interesting penmanship in a couple of cases, in her case included. Um, that they had some personal and what you might call domestic habits uh, that fascinated me. And I began to wonder if there was such a way that one could think about modern artists not just inventing a modern art style in their studio practice, but whether there were certain other aspects of living that we might think of as associated to the modern movement. And it was in that vein that I began to revisit O'Keeffe, and discovered, to my complete surprise, that her entire wardrobe 
um, existed, or that is what was left at the time of her her death. Um, she had left two homes behind, and when those two homes made their way through a set of trusteeships and ownerships to the um, be, to become properties owned by the O'Keefe Museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's when I learned that uh, amongst her furnishings uh, in those homes were clothes in closets. And that was kind of a license, if you will, to explore one aspect of lifestyle uh, I already knew that I was interested in George O'Keefe's homes, that they were themselves brilliantly and fascinatingly furnished and put together. So I had two things going, the homes and the clothes. And that's sort of when that all started. And that that was something I learned about in 2000. I was still teaching, so it took me another 12 years or so to get going on it. And I did that in, in the early uh, um 12 tens. Um, and we made the book happen. And then the exhibition that accompanied it happened simultaneously in 2017. Yeah. And well, first, can you give us a sense of the scale of the wardrobe? Well, it was deeper than you might think for somebody who lived until her 98th year. Uh, and also somebody who had made a dramatic change in her personal life after her husband died in 1946, instead of just summering in New Mexico, she decided to make it her four-season home uh, and to, in fact, put together a brand new house um, in Abiquiu, New Mexico. This is in 1949, when she left New York City for good uh, and went to New Mexico and basically had another 40-year career, um, or 40 years of, of, of life and career. Uh, so what surprised me is that within this wardrobe were things that she wore when she was in her 20s and 30s, uh, so that some of those clothes go back to at least the 20s. We might even have a, a garment or two that might be from the 19-teens. Uh, and for some reason or other, and I think I kind of now know why, she saved these garments. So we don't have a full run of everything in between what she was wearing when she died in the 1890s. Uh, and then, but we have a pretty strong run of things that she saved primarily because they're very beautiful clothes. And I think she just couldn't let go. Uh, so I, that's one way of saying we had a lot to work through. And none of it, of course, was cataloged or itemized in any way that make us make sense to somebody looking at them in, in uh, 2010. Uh, we, had to, we had to really sort and bring in experts to help us date uh, things some things had uh, labels, brand labels, but an awful lot of things had been handmade, either by her, she turned out to be a very good seamstress, or by designers and seamstresses that she would hire uh, to work under her guidance. Um, so we had a lot, a lot of work. I mean, just to give you an example, we probably had at least 12 pairs of jeans uh, 
and not that that was the most interesting part of the garment, but we also had of, of her repertoire, but we also had, um, she, she wore something at the end of her life, last 20, 30 years of her life that I call the wrap dress. And I think we're up to 26 wrap dresses that we found, uh, in her homes. And we know of several others that she had given away as, as gifts. So. It was it was a it was a big arc. I call it an archive because it does have that kind of historical depth to it. It's not just all ten years worth of things, but more like a lifetime worth of things. I know because you think of George O'Keefe as being minimalist, but the, in fact, like her wardrobe, you wouldn't think that she was holding on to things with that kind of sentimentality. But to your point, the images of some of those handmade clothes are just just incredible. The little pin tucks and the embroidery is really. Exquisite. And I think maybe that's something people don't. I know there's that famous Stieglitz photo with her hands in the thimble that maybe people actually may have assumed that was more um, like metaphoric and not like there's a literal, she was literally an exquisite seamstress. Yes, I think that's, a, it's not an aspect that she was, she was uh, likely to talk much about because clothes were very functional to her, but they had to also meet her own aesthetic tastes. Uh, that's one thing I, I learned that functionality was one thing she looked for, but then they had to have that look, that minimalist, spare, undecorated, uh, sort of uh, as simple as possible, less is more kind of modernist um, uh, look, look to them. Uh, so she, it was important to her that she looked the way she um, she saw life. The filter that she used was always this very early 20th century modernist filter of, of single colors, for instance. And if they were patterns, they had to be basic plaids or, or checks. Um, but basically she eschewed any kind of um, lacy look or uh, flowery patterns, uh, um, she she had such strong tastes that she lived with all her life uh, that it was her her taste. I was able to kind of measure it and and understand it so that I can now probably shop and understand exactly what O'Keefe might have liked or not liked, more likely not liked. Um, th- now that I now that I've seen her closet and and cataloged it. Because she, to your point, she was really embodying modernism in all of her choices, that simplicity and that the distillation down to the essence of the clothing. Yes, that, that was she as she often put it, she always uh, she sought to make beautiful in everything she did. And it had to have and beautiful to her did mean a kind of understated simplicity. Well, what? What was the most surprising piece that you found or pieces when you were digging in? Well, I think several things were surprising. Uh, I'll try to limit it to, to two and then we can see if we <laughs> want to go further. But I mean, one thing is that not everything was black and white. And I had having studied photographs of her, most of which were black and white photographs. But even within the black and white photographs, you could tell she was wearing black and white often, I think, to suit the medium. She knew the medium worked well with bold 
whites and blacks next to one another uh, in kind of abstract patterns. Um, so one thing that surprised me is when color appeared. And I learned that blue, for instance, particularly after she started to go regularly to New Mexico, blue was a favorite color. And I think it was because of a, the skies, and the beautiful blue skies, they're so big skies of New Mexico, but also she did kind of have a fancy for an everyday dress, uh, denim. Uh, and blue denim, of course, is kind of a uniform, a regional uniform of of uh, of the West, the American uh, the American West. So if there was another color that played a big role, it was that. But then every once in a while, she'd have just a touch of red uh, or a touch of yellow, um, and that that was one surprise. The second surprise was that she did occasionally have things by designers that I wouldn't have imagined necessarily would be to her liking uh, until you sort of reflect on it. But Mary Mako, for instance, was a very important find. And we found four Mary Mako dresses that she had in her wardrobe that were very well worn. So she had had uh, used them not for photographers. Uh, it's hard to find her in her Mary Mako dresses standing or modeling for photographers, although one or two photographers that were very, uh, very close to her did catch her in a couple of these dresses. But by and large, that was her uh, her everyday clothes for New Mexico, but not what she would put on when a photographer was coming to call. So that made me realize the degree to which she had wardrobes for public consumption and wardrobes for everyday use. Uh, and the wardrobes for everyday use, and that included her denim, by the way, she did not wear denim for photographers. Um, th- that was very interesting to me, but that she had, uh, she made a kind of clear separation of that she looked more to her liking when she dressed for photographers. She looked she looked for um, a kind of, uh, she had to look a certain way for a photographer. And then she had another kind of, if you will, set of um, criteria that, that uh, she used when she dressed at home. That included her, her everyday sleepwear and intimate wear, which very likely would have been um, kimonos. Uh, she had many kimonos, and yet she never wore those in the public domain, but she loved them. Uh, She bought them in different uh, patterns and different cottons. Uh, And so I learned that her interest in all things Asian, and she did have a a deep sense of Asian art and deep, deep love for travel in Asia, which she did on a couple of trips. Um, And it included her collection of, of uh, kimono from different parts of the Asian world, but also she would buy import kimonos, and she'd even have kimonos made for her by seamstresses to her own instructions. So I knew she had um, all these kimono, but try to find them in the photographs, and they appear once or twice, but with great rarity. So there were elements that uh, we who worked on the collection began to realize were what people might have seen that were close to her in the neighborhood, but were not for public consumption. Yeah. I found the Mary Mecca really surprising and shocking when it like the, the vertical striped dress and yeah, it's not how we 
have seen her public persona as well. The dress with, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just was going to say that I did a little research on the reception of Mary Mako in her first um, couple of seasons in this country. And it actually turns out that the people that were the most receptive to her clothes, Mary Mako's designs, were in fact people who uh, who uh, self-identified uh, as moderns. And that included a lot of academics, which is interesting, teachers. They were very expensive. I wanted one. I can remember really yearning for one, but not being able to quite um, pay the price tag at that time because I was still in graduate school. Um, but also even Jackie Kennedy was in the news for having bought several Mary Mako dresses at one at one time. Uh, but they were really thought to be kind of a, a dress for our times. The, and, you know, they were organic cotton and they had very basic patterns to them. Uh, they had pockets, which George O'Keefe always thought was one thing she couldn't live without. Everything she had as a dress had to have a pocket in it. Um, and they, the, 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 um, in, in retrospect, I can understand why she would have been drawn to them because they were not addressed. They weren't mainstream. They were f- for people who had a kind of art eye, if I can put it that way. Yeah, a friend was just telling me about the early days of the Design Within Reach in Harvard Square and the Mary Mecco, and every you had to. That was like the thing. That very special to get one of those. It was. Um, also, the other surprising piece was that black. Um, the coat with the rainbow lining that just seemed completely um, not what we would think would be in her wardrobe. Also very, did you know, have, did you understand, come to find the story of that particular piece? Well, yes, I have. And I'm going to now uh, divulge it in a way that's not in the book. In fact, the book is wrong. <laughs> oh, a secret. Yay. <laughs> that piece always made us a little anxious. We loved it. It's a lovely piece. It's what we call an evening wrap or evening coat. And it has this wonderful kind of Art Nouveau decoration, very beautifully done on uh, uh, at one side. And it's an asymmetrical, as I recall, asymmetrical yeah. button. Yeah. Well, it turns out, so I, I hesitantly in the book, I do believe I say possibly by Georgia O'Keeffe. Well, it turns out, that once the book was published, um, uh, actually several years after it was published, or uh, I get a letter from the person who made it, and it was someone who made it as a graduate school design project, basing it on her understanding of Georgia O'Keeffe's aesthetic, and she made it and sent it to Georgia O'Keeffe as a gift after her degree work was completed. So there's a place where we we actually um, uh, didn't quite do our connoisseurship uh, correctly, and um, I'm not terribly embarrassed by this because it I think is in a certain way and a, a testament to the maker that she got it so right that she fooled the experts, so to speak. Uh, she didn't, she wasn't trying to be O'Keefe, but because we found it amongst O'Keefe's things and we weren't surprised that we had never seen her wear it in a photograph because we found so many things that fit that particular definition. Uh, Anyway, this this woman wrote me with just great um, pleasure to see this coat uh, 
in the book and that someone had noticed. She also seemed to take pleasure in the fact that her advisor had not seen the coat with particular, as, as having any particular sort of specialness to it. And so she thought, I think, a little under a, a little deflated by her advisor and was feeling that it was a sort of justice finally done uh, to see this in a book. <laughs> well, it's testament to it being a part of the story because she kept it. I mean, it was still yes. in the, yeah. Well, um, let's go back to the wrap dress. I think that's really interesting, that uniform. And you mentioned how she sewed some of the wrap dresses, but she also had seamstresses sew them for her when she, cause she got the pattern that she really liked and just that became a key piece of her uniform, which has that iconic V-neck. Can you say a little bit about the V-neck and how that was really a, a important part of her aesthetic? Yes. Well, I don't actually know when the first V-necks um, appear in her wardrobe, but I can say from looking at photographs that even as a young woman, uh, she liked the V-neck, and it became one of the continuities uh, in her in her uh, uh, sort of wardrobe from youth to old age. I think in uh, that perhaps she liked the V-neck because she had a beautiful neck. And she realized very early on that she could set that V with the V as a kind of surround, if you will, or as a kind of pedestal for the neck. Uh, It really, when she pulled her hair back the way she did characteristically for most of her life, uh, it, it really made a kind of sculptural form out of her head and neck that was very, very beautiful. And I think Stieglitz, Alfred Stieglitz, her, her husband and her, her, her chief photographer for a, a good number of years. I think he helped her understand the degree to which it was a, um, a, a beautiful way for her, her to dress because he would often take that V-neck um, motif and really strengthen it by the way he would crop his photographs uh, to show off uh, show off the V-neck. But also the V-neck gets rid of something that she never really uh, uh, liked if they got too fussy, which is called the collar. (laughs) She liked Mandarin collars and she liked um, what we would have thought of at the time as kind of men button-down collars. But she really hated frilly collars or roundish collars. I guess they, I think they would be almost too overly feminine for her um, aesthetic. So I I thought a lot about the V-neck because it, nobody had never noted the degree to which the V is constant, not only to her wardrobe, but also to her art. She uses the the, the, the beautiful sort of branching out of a form to make a V, whether it's in trees or some of her abstractions or some of her flower um, works. It's a constant in both... Uh, costuming uh, and in art. So that that was something that I think I personally learned through this study. And of course, I, I'm an art historian. I'm not really a, um, a fashion historian. Uh, and I had to get a lot of help to sort of to understand some of the fashion elements. But what did come to really um, drive my investigation was this idea that it was one intelligence that was dressing the body in the morning and in a certain way um, with a kind of strictness and discipline. And it was that same intelligence that was going into the studio 
to make compositions very often from nature or at least inspired by nature. And it was as I was trying to kind of decipher that intelligence and try to describe it more holistically than just by, if you will, discipline, you know, the 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 uh, the fashion body versus the artist in the studio um, person and what what she's doing on her canvases. I was trying to bring that all together into one continuous flow to use O'Keefean language, uh, so that my reader could appreciate, as I had come to appreciate, uh, somebody who was probably more um, consistent and more um, disciplined in the way she went around about her life than I personally have ever been or could ever be. And I suspect I speak for a lot of my readers uh, as, as, as well. Most of us are a little bit more frayed at the edges, if we will, if, if I can put it that way, that, that we, you know, we, we don't have consistency. Um, uh, and we don't have, maybe we don't even know who exactly we are when we, um, go to choose a, a new garment or something. She always seemed to know exactly what was right for her. And she would dismiss 90% of what she had available to her. Um, and I came to, to really admire that, um, in her knowing that I could never myself imitate it or be that way. Um, but it was a way of being in the world and it was a very beautiful way of being in the world. Yeah. And just to underline the part about the meaning, I think that's a really fascinating thing you point out because once I read in your book, I was like, oh yeah, you see it throughout the art. This, I mean, it's really, it just creates that it's, it's so seamless. You don't even notice perhaps yeah. is the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think to your point about maintaining that, it was interesting point you say about her mending the clothes always, you know, taking care of the clothes and mending them and always having some mending happening. I mean, really um, holding that wardrobe and maintaining it through her life is a really interesting piece of it and that commitment to it. Well, it surprised me that she was as frugal as she seemed to have been, but I think it was frugality and it was also practicality uh, because when she loved a dress she did not want to have to worry about where she was going to get either another one or you know what what she would have to get to update her wardrobe if it was wearing out so she was always taking up and down hems she would patch um things we found a suit where the a zipper must have failed and instead of going out and just getting a black zipper to go in the black suit uh, skirt, she had a green zipper that was the right size. And she knew that if she put the green zipper in, the jacket of the suit would always cover the zipper, which was in the back, as I remember. And so she just used the green zipper. It looks completely weird, but it, nobody <laughs> could ever see it. So she would often do things and make little patches um, and, and so, and so around, uh, when there was a hole in something, she would patch it and then she'd do this careful, careful, careful stitching so that you can barely see the patch unless you really look very carefully. And usually it was in a place where it was inconspicuous. Uh, so she would make a dress stretch for decades in some cases. Wow. So interesting. And I guess you know, also I'm thinking about the jewelry she wore. I mean, there's... She didn't wear a lot of jewelry, but this iconic Calder pin 
which is essentially art on her clothes. I mean, it's almost like a sign like of the of the seamlessness between the art and the clothing. Can you say a little bit about that um, very iconic Calder O'Keefe pin that he made? Uh, I mean, you're right. She wore very, very little jewelry. Uh, and, and more likely the jewelry, and it isn't really jewelry, but she liked button. Uh, she liked to have single buttons or at least buttons of a single shape. She loved pearl buttons, uh, but they had to be perfectly round and just, you know, without any kind of uh, textured quality to them. Um, uh, and similarly, she she took some silver buttons and made them into pins that were Native American. I forget where they were. They were, they were silver. Uh, Navajo? I, they might have been Navajo, yes. In fact, they were Navajo. And she had a set of like six of them, and she had all six of them made into pins. And as best I can tell, she never wore more than two at any one time, and that was very, very rare. In, in the late 1930s, uh, Sandy Calder made a pin for her. We're not quite sure how that all happened, though we know that Calder and O'Keefe were acquaintances and had a great admiration for one another's work. Uh, and O'Keefe uh, is seen in a photograph by Ansel Adams in 1938, and she's wearing this Calder pin for the for what I know of as the first time in a photograph. Uh, and, and that may or may mean that it was brand new, more or less, at, the, at that particular moment. In any case, it's made out of um, uh, c- copper and uh, pounded copper. Uh, and it's her, the first two letters of her last name, it's an O and a K that are put together in a beautiful way with the O is a spiral of, of, of metal. Uh, and then the K is a loop-de-doo K, which is very, very beautiful. And it has, it's all joined. So there's just one um, pin backing for the O and the K. It wasn't two different pins. It was one different pin. And then she liked to wear it just to be to confound people. She'd like to wear it on it was, it was a vertical pin, okay, but then she would turn it so that the O would be over the K. She'd wear it on the, on the vertical rather than the horizontal. And when you look at her wearing this pin in, uh, on the vertical, you realize it kind of looks like one of her own paintings. Uh, it, has a, it takes an abstract shape to it because you don't see the O and K unless you kind of turn your head or you know to look for it. Uh, and that And that became for her kind of a... Um, a talking point. She loved to to fool people that way, and not and they didn't necessarily see it right off the bat as a as a colder um, as a colder pin. Uh, and there's another nice story that goes along with that, in, in that as she got um, older and grayer, she began to think that really what she wanted was a silver colder pin. Um, because the original pin, uh, uh, its coloration, uh, she uh, felt didn't work as well as, as silver would work. So when she went on one of her Asian trips to um, to Asia, she found a silversmith in India, uh, and had took her pin, her Calder pin with her, and asked the silversmith to make a copy of it for her. And he did at a, you know, devastatingly 
cheap price, which she liked to tell the story of. And then, so she had two Calder pins. There might even have been a third. It's not quite clear yet, but only one of them's the original Calder. And then the other is a, is an inexpensive, but pretty well done knockoff. Not, not many people would know it, uh, know it as a knockoff unless they were, they were told the story, but that's again, her frugality at work, but also her design a sense of appropriate design at work uh, that uh, she felt silver suited her aesthetic better as, as she got older, her coloring better as she got older. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Something that struck me about her wardrobe was is the idea of I feel like um, today we have there tends to be in someone's wardrobe very distinct things for different activities, and that. You know, there's the outdoor clothes or your work clothes or these clothes. And it, her wardrobe seemed much more seamless, like a true wardrobe. You know, maybe she wore the denim if she was a little more. But did you have thoughts about that, about this continuity of self that was seamless through her activities? Well, I think the seamlessness definitely applies to the aesthetics of her dress. Um that you would find the V-neck would run through all, all, all aspects of the of the wardrobe, um, as would the the, uh, the fact that the the colors and and the fabrics and so on. However, she did have what I know she thought of as her work clothes, and, and those included her big heavy leather boots and her um, denim shirts and her denim pants. And she had what she thought of as her city clothes, especially in her later years, because she would write in letters, something like, I'm going to New York in a week, so I'm going to go to my closets now and, and, and find my, my city clothes. And by mm-hmm. that, she usually meant suits. Uh, she did not wear pants uh, until very, very late uh, in in public spaces, uh, she I think she was um, one of those that wasn't sure pants were proper until second wave feminism proved to her that she could do it. But she was not. She was an early adopter in terms of work clothes, wearing pants, but not an early adopter like Catherine Hepburn was, for instance, or. Mm-hmm that generation of, of Hollywood people who would sometimes wear their, their pants um, uh, very controversially uh, in the city uh, in what the forties and fifties. She, she took her time making a decision to wear a pantsuit and we have very few images of her in skirt. We have many images of her in skirts and jackets, but, uh, and she, in her later years would buy three piece suits four, even four piece suits. We have one where she has pants, skirt, vest, and jacket. And then we have several where she has pants, skirt, and jacket. Um, But more often than not, when she dressed for a photographer 
uh, it would be with a skirt and jacket rather than than the pants and jackets until the very late years, and then then she she shows up more often wearing wearing uh, her pants. So she did she did have. Um, if you will, specific um, sets of clothes for activities. But again, you can sort of lump them all together in terms of the aesthetics of those clothes. They don't vary that much. And then, of course, the the point that becomes really clear is her work life and her home life, and then what, how she cultivated the public persona. And this you know, the, what she started early in her career, almost from the very beginning with Stieglitz and, and living with a photographer who helped her develop a consciousness around how she appeared in photography, which really became stronger and, and stayed through her whole life. Can you, and I mean, I think she's one of our best examples of early examples of claiming your, your public persona. Um, can you talk about that process? It's really interesting. And, or, yeah. Well, I think it, it was a process, and it really started with Stieglitz. Um, she, as a child, we have snapshots of her, and we have a few formal photographs taken as a high schooler, the way that most middle-class kids were uh, are photographed at certain formal junctures um, in the process of education and so on. But really, she was not what you would call a model uh, any more than any of us are models in those in, in those early years. So it was when she met Stieglitz, who was truly a great photographer and who had always wanted to do what he called a continuous portrait of someone that he was seeing over the years and could photograph over those same years. And he had thought maybe he would do it with a daughter. Then he thought with another family member. Anyway, it had never worked out. But when, when O'Keefe came into his life, um, he began to realize that uh, she was the poss- he, she offered the possibility of becoming a subject at that uh, he could photograph over a lot of time. And he did. He photographed her for about 20-some odd years before he just hung up his camera and stopped photographing altogether. So really, it was their partnership um, where she learned how to model for him and uh, learned his lessons, um, which were mostly how, uh, how to pose uh, in a way that was attractive to him, but also became very attractive to her. For instance, people always remark how serious and um, uh, s- serious and intense uh, she looks in her photographs, and that was all by design. Uh, in fact, so much by design that she absorbed the notion that you do not smile in front of cameras because if you smile, then you aren't you. you it isn't a universally fine work. It's something that's transient and casual. That's what you do in a snapshot, but you don't do that formal photographer. So from Stieglitz, she got a very um, good education. And eventually, I think she's actually participating with him in some of the later photographs, because she by then learned what she wore mattered that if she covered herself up in a cape or a smock uh, or something, uh, a headdress over her, her hair, that it was very attractive way for him to, to, uh, it was, it made her very attractive 
for his camera because he could put her against the sky or next to a tree and, and simplify her shape um, because he, she already presented a simplified shape and then he would just work with that. So they, they became quite um, a um, expert couple and knowing how each other wanted uh, wanted to work. So that lesson, set of lessons that she got, is what she carried with her for the rest of her life. And I think one of the big surprises for me, and should be for my readers, is the degree to which she continued to be a model for the rest of her life. We all think of those Stieglitz photographs as uh, as as. as some of the classic views that we have of her. But one of the things I learned is that, first of all, very few photographers before Stieglitz's death, but uh, Ansel Adams was one who was, and uh, Carl Van Vechten both photographed her during, uh, during the lifetime of Stieglitz. But basically he had a kind of monopoly over her image while he was her husband and her main photographer. But when he died, in 46, 1946. I mean, from that point on, there's another 40 to 50 photographers that sought her out, sometimes on commission, sometimes because they they, they wanted her in their portfolios. And I, I created an appendix that's in my book uh, of the photographers I discovered that she had sat for. And I'm not talking about casual photographers. I'm talking about portrait photographers or or people who were quite serious about making a long-lasting photograph of her. That's quite amazing. And while I don't know the statistics of, of other um, American women at the time, uh, I, I would say she perhaps is the most photographed American artist of the 20th century. Women artist, I should add that, woman artist. Um, I'm not absolutely sure about that. Frida Kahlo might be a competitor. But I came up with something like 52 names, I've kind of forgotten now, in my appendix. And that's quite extraordinary. People I don't think have realized the degree, the amount of time she spent modeling and also how generous she was to actually sit for that many photographers. Yeah, I mean, she was almost, I think you said it was like a second profession in the arts. I mean, she's co-creating these photos, essentially, because at that point in her life, she'd become quite had like a vocabulary of poses and a very clear understanding of how to, she wanted to be presented or not presented essentially. That's right. She certainly knew that she did not want to be seen smiling. And uh, several photographers that I spoke with for whom she sat told me it was one thing that was very clear, no teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to remember that. <laughs> One thing I think that's um, interesting that when we talk about this idea of her self-fashioning her persona, I mean, I think she, she, it was so strong that in a sense, your work with the archive even shows that even after her death, what she left behind was this very solid identity that even went past her almost a century of life. I mean, that's a testament to the depth of her attention to it. That's, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we, we, we have a language now that we use for this, such as creating a persona, as you just said. And 
many reviewers of the book and the exhibition talked about her creating a brand. Um, I don't think that's a term I used in my book because that is so very um, contemporary way of thinking. Uh, And sometimes she was presented in the reviews in more calculating light than I was totally comfortable with. Mm. I don't think she herself would have known that she was into image creation or identity formation, you know, all these things, these these sort of academic ways of thinking that that we might apply to her today. It it wasn't quite, I think on Stieglitz's part, he, he was a little, he was calculating very often because he marketed his artists and she was one of them. She was the only woman that he really worked hard to make sure that she got the publicity that he felt he, she deserved um, as an artist. And he used his photographs as a means to um, talking about her as an artist and, and putting those photo, his photographs in, instead of letting a, a magazine journalist photographer come out and photograph her. He said, no, 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 you've got to use one of my photographs if you're going to do this story in Vanity Fair, for instance, uh, um, something of that sort. So he was he he was a little calculating about keeping up her image uh, as a serious artist. But I think also you have to remember that the, um, the inclination, of course, was to overly... Um, to, to overly publicize her as just an oddity uh, as a woman artist at, at the time. And there was really an effort on her part to be seen as serious in her endeavor and her métier. Um, and she learned how to sort of control the press so that she would be seen in the best light possible as a serious um, painter, not a Sunday painter, not a hobbyist, um, not a sensationalist. Um, sometimes her flowers were sort of thought to be very sensationalist and she had to buck that, she felt. So it, in a way she was trying to control the press, yes, but it wasn't so that she would become a celebrity. It was rather that she would be seen as somebody who was a, a, a very serious about what what she had devoted her life to, that she was really a, a, a fine artist. Um, and people weren't used to women being fine artists of, of great um, renown or caliber at that particular time. So what we see today is the, the, the sort of, if you will, steady creation of a persona, I think was more, there was more trial and error to it. There was more kind of, uh, um, well, sort of learning how the machinery of the media worked. And uh, we know how to, we know how it works more today than we did then. They were they were they were kind of pioneers in the PR industry. We could maybe that's the way to think about about them. They were figuring it out. Um, and uh, so was Hollywood about the same time. Uh, so when she becomes a star, and this is fascinating, she doesn't become a star really until the 1970s, and she's already um, a, a woman of uh, most of her career is, has happened already. Um, she's a much older woman. She's she's in her uh, 70s and 80s when she becomes a star, and it's really uh, not by her own design that she becomes a star. Then it's more. Th- the 
times, uh, particularly the feminist movement uh, that created a heroine out of her, uh, a, a sort of someone who, who inspired other women. Um, so the fact is that all the time she was making art and having her art career, um, she was more in control of things. Once the feminist movement and the, if you will, all the um, sort of breaking of the rules that came with the 1960s and 70s, once that kind of rebellion swept across the country and she became a um, sought after figure for her lifestyle, for her, for her art, for her breaking through the glass ceiling, uh, for somebody who had had a consistently fine a, a career as as an artist. I mean, once all those things came together and gelled, and she became a kind of celebrity. Really, most of her life had been had been lived at that time. She's she's kind of an elder that an elder celebrity. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because. You know, thinking about how we're looking at her through our lens in this Instagram age and this the cultivation of a brand or a persona, and I and we know that Stieglitz was trying to market her as an artist, but I think you make a pretty good case that you know most of that may have been really her uh, embrace the modern embracing this modern aesthetic and wanting to represent that less about wanting to just you know be a certain persona in the world, but more being true to a certain modern values that she understood aesthetically and were, because even in her early life, when you, it was a really interesting point about, we think about this is seamless through her living spaces and her way to her way of cooking and living was so much in her inside of her that even when she was in college, you mentioned she had an apartment that was very Victorian, had tiny flowers on the floor, and it was unbearable to even be in that space. And I think that just underlined how this was sort of core to her, this aesthetic truth. Yes, I think that's a, that's a very nice way, way to put it. And I think that really was her treatise. <laughs> that is, I'm going to represent a way of living um, that is so basic and so simplified and so just um, one with nature. Nature is always her her soulmate uh, in everything that that she does. Um, that that's more important to her than um, her public image. I mean, she just uses her public image to amplify her philosophy. Um, and it's just one, one, one way in which she does it. I was, I'm, I may have made this up, but I was wondering if after the exhibit, um, which got quite a bit of attention, did, was there a sort of a little bit of a wave moving through fashion of that was inspired somewhat by her aesthetic? Have any, has anyone commented on this? The wrap dress <laughs> reemerging? No, I, I can't say that anybody has commented directly on any, you know, new fashion wave that that maybe the the exhibition um, instilled. Uh, if you look at the last pages of my book, uh, I do look at contemporary fashion that was already in existence at the time of I was finishing the book, where uh, people were doing things in her name, you know, putting out a 
a, a hat or a dress or a taking a pattern that you can do this now with with computers. You can computerize clothes, uh, cloth, um, and they would take a motif from one of her paintings and literally photograph it and then make print it, it. In, um, yeah, print it. Um, wow. Dig- digital printing on fabric. Uh, so it was already in sort of process <laughs> when my show happened. And whether there was any little uptick, uh, uh, I don't know. But I can say that the exhibition, which had in it clothes, but also lots of her art, and then also photographs of her often wearing the very clothes that were on view or clothes like them. Uh, so it was a very multi um, media exhibition in terms of what we had on view. And it did have a very strong uh, fashion or fashion or uh, seamstress crowd, <laughs> people who sew uh, or design uh, were a big part of the audience. I got a lot of, of nice mail uh, from that part of the world and a few fashion um, icons, the names of which escape me now, but when they visited the show, they actually made news um, because they had somebody had come from London and, you know, made a half day special trip out to Brooklyn to see the exhibition. And somehow that, 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 that made the, made the news because this person was a big enough figure in the fashion world, but it was nice to have the mixture of audiences in this exhibition wasn't strictly speaking an art audience. It was uh, an audience uh, that often were there for the clothes, so to speak. And then there were lots that were there for the photographs. And then there was a young audience that were seeing O'Keefe somewhat for the first time. And uh, they were, they were really a pleasure to, to talk to younger members of the audience because they, for them, uh, and I think this is part of our, our youth, youth, youth culture. It, to them, they thought it was natural that you would want your clothes to matter as much as your art, um, that your brand would be uh, important to be fashioning and, and, and figuring out. Uh, they had a more natural sympathy for her efforts to be um, consistent uh, than I, I expected. And I realized that that is, I think, part of their generation's way of thinking. Uh, they, they do think about, about fashioning personas and making brands uh, in, in a far more self-conscious way. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm sure we've teased people listening enough, but I can't, uh, can't say enough how exquisite the not just not only the text, but also the images in the book. And it's worth looking at some of the videos online to see um, the exhibit because it's really just such an interesting collection. Well, getting the photographs was a, a chore um, because none of these things had been photographed before. So that was a, a challenge to, to get a nice collection of the clothes. And then I had a wonderful team uh, that worked on the design of the book uh, and uh, I thought it, they did do a beautiful job. The person that designed the book um, had a real sympathy for O'Keefe's aesthetic and was able to infuse the book, I think, with the same kind of look, if you will, that, that O'Keefe herself would have enjoyed and, and wanted. 
There is interesting in, when you see the photos of the clothing lying flat next to images of her filling the clothing. There's something really um, pr provoking about that. What did you think when you saw that? Like, did you notice that as the book was coming together, especially, and you're seeing the flat, the photos of the clothes without the body? Yeah. Well, that's that's a good point. Um, uh, we only did that, I think, with clothes that can sort of stand up to it, if you will, without the body. Mm. They're so beautiful in and of themselves. Yeah. Either beautifully made or shaped or designed that um, we felt that we could, uh, that they, they, they merited their own beautiful photography uh, to put next to a photograph of her wearing uh, wearing the clothes. You know, in 1980, I actually met Miss O'Keefe, as we all called her at that time, uh, well, or as she was called in, by anyone around her in, in her lifetime, Miss O'Keefe. Uh, and I was working on the book I mentioned much, much earlier, The Great American Thing. And that was my first time in her home. Uh, I've been in her home many, many times after her death. But the only time I was there, uh, and the first time I was there was when I visited her in 1980, because I wanted to interview her for my book and to learn. She was the only living artist that I looked at in this book, That um, the only living artist that I I, I could actually interview and, and, and ask some questions about uh, the theme of my book, which was those artists who rather self-consciously tried to create not only modern art, but modern American art. They were interested in trying to create a school, the American school, if you will, to, uh, to, to rival and to be, uh, have its own identity from the school of Paris. Uh, that was every on everybody's mind at that particular time. So I, um, I think she was wearing on that visit. I did not take photographs because I felt that it was it would make it would might make her um, uh, suspicious if I <laughs> if I if that maybe I was only coming for the photographs. So I was very very careful and very conscious of of using my time just to do my professional work of asking her questions and so on. But I think she was wearing one of her wrap dresses, and and probably. Her, um, her her characteristic belt, and maybe she was even wearing the colder uh, pin. I, I was just so anxious to get my questions answered and a little nervous about how it all would go. So I, I, I can't remember exactly, but I do remember that she was very generous with her time. Most importantly, I remember that she would speak in very short uh, sentences, concise sentences. So when I would ask her a question, she might answer it in six or seven sentences and then be done with it. Now you can see where this is going, because when you ask a question, it takes me 50 questions, 50, 50 uh, sentences to answer it, but not her. She, and, and I realized she had an aesthetic of conversation. Ah, yeah. and exactly like her. Wow. So that was a great lesson to me. It was the way she responded to things. Uh, just had that same streamlined sort of let's let's get to the nub of this, the heart of it, and let's get going to the next question. <laughs> truly a living modern. She was <laughs> truly a living modern. Yeah. Wow. What? Well, what are you working on now? Uh, this will sound very different perhaps to your listeners, but believe me, if we had time, we could, we could find the continuities, but I'm writing a biography of the couple with a pitchfork. 
Oh, wow. How fascinating. Wow. That, of course, is all starts with a painting by Grant Wood called American Gothic. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in how the couple at some point, you know, step out of the painting to become an image all on their own that floats around and through our popular and commercial culture. So it's, uh, as I say, it's a biography about them as opposed to a biography of the painting. Wow, that is fascinating. Can't wait to read that one. Wow. (laughs) Well, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we didn't get to? No, but thank you very, very much for your interest in in the book, my book. Uh, I, it's a, such a, a pleasure that the book is living on and finding readers uh, and like yourself who uh, may not have had, had the opportunity to see the show. And I, I do still get a little bit of fan mail now and again, and I'm just always thrilled because uh, there's nothing like writing a book that has a little relevance well beyond the exhibition that it accompanied. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I it's one that you can read many times. There's just so many layers to it as you've revealed in this conversation. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's really been fascinating. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, and this is the New Books Network. And I've been speaking with our guest, Wanda Korn, about her book, Georgia O'Keeffe, Living Modern. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.